0: The Art Newspaper Weekly podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke, and this week we're looking at two very different forms of reconstruction. In a moment, I talk to Adam Lowe of Factum Arte, the pioneers of digital reconstruction of historical objects and paintings. And later in the podcast, I speak to the curator Norman Rosenthal and the gallerist Thaddeus Ropak about their recreation of a major Joseph Boy's work from 1982 as part of a major show dedicated to the late German artist in London.
1: He he was part of that generation that really taught us that uh, everything is beautiful.
0: But first this week, Mystery of the Lost Paintings is a new Sky Arts television series in which seven paintings that have been stolen or destroyed are reconstructed using digital means. Among the artists whose work features are Van Gogh, Vermeer, Monet and Klimt. Adam Lowe is the founder of Factum Arte, the company based in Madrid, tasked with recreating the paintings, often from very modest evidence of their material qualities. Adam is with me now to talk about this latest project. Adam, I wonder if you might begin by telling us about Factum Arte and the Factum Foundation and what they do.
2: Yes, it's something many people get a little bit confused about. But Factum Arte is a workshop in Madrid that now uh, has about 50 people doing very different tasks, related Uh, to turning ideas into physical objects. So the emphasis is very much on physical things, it's on making, but it's a new kind of workshop that uses digital mediation, uh, developing new tools, thinking laterally, uh, and trying to basically work with artists to create a kind of playground environment in which artists can experiment completely freely. Factum Foundation uses many of the same tools many of the things that are being developed by factum arte but it applies them to the uh, digitization of cultural heritage and very often to the production of facsimiles so there there is a synergy and factum foundation really needs the factum arte structure to thrive but they're two separate issues uh, separate entities um, that work uh, in parallel the lost painting series that uh, we're here to talk about now was actually a factum arte project. Project commissioned by uh, Balandi Film uh, for Sky Arts, uh, in which Factor Mate was asked to think about how to represent seven paintings that were destroyed in the 20th century.
0: So tell me about about how you chose those seven because they're very different. They've got very different histories. Some are stolen. Some are damaged. Some are no longer extant. Some have remnants. Well, as it's you can things. as you can
2: imagine, there was a there was a lot of uh, negotiation about which seven paintings would make um, uh, best television. Uh, in many ways, uh, we were incredibly lucky in in how the stories um, uh, uh, unraveled. And, and and it's what i love about the work we do so for example the monet painting uh, was a painting that was destroyed in a fire uh, at moma in new york in in 1958 and it had been bought by the museum in the early 50s uh, had caused a bit of a sensation it's uh, one of two two monet paintings that were destroyed in the fire um and uh, when we started working on that all i thought we had was a black and white Um, uh, photograph that had been taken in the conservation department when the work had had a minor treatment. But the more we started talking and talking with the conservation team at MoMA, it transpired that the original canvas still existed somewhere, very badly smoke damaged, very blackened, very bandaged, but it had been given uh, by the insurance company to uh, New York University. So then through a series of serendipitous connections, uh, I ended up uh, finding the uh, canvas in the conservate well in someone 's office in the conservation department, so once we 'd got that, the challenge of recreating the money became a very different one, so we had physical evidence, and that became a forensic uh, investigation into what this painting might have been. Um, the Van Gogh was a very different story because the painting had been destroyed completely. Um, uh, uh, in uh, the American bombing uh, uh, of Osaka at the end of the Second World War, Um, and the whole of the uh, area where it was housed was destroyed by firebombs. So that painting was gone. But we did have one slightly poor, because it was very early, colour photograph from, I think it was taken in the 30s. Um, So it wasn't a particularly good photo, but we had a reference. Um, And then through conversations with Larry Keith at the National Gallery in London, um, uh, who have one of the 3D scanners that we developed in Factum and that we use a lot for recording the surface of paintings, uh, um, the conservation department at the National Gallery entered into Uh, a dialogue, and they actually scanned the surface of the sunflowers that is in the National Gallery. And we know that this painting was painted in the same week, with the same palette, probably with the same paintbrushes. So once we've got the brush uh, marks from the uh, painting at the National Gallery, we were able to uh, distort them to fit the character of the brush marks in the painting that had been destroyed. And if there's one thing that comes out of that series that I really love, it's actually looking at the way those brush marks are distorted. Uh, So we know they're the same brushes, or we're assuming, but we're pretty certain they are. Uh, And so if you can see where the, the rough sense of the marks was and how he was painting the centre of the sunflowers, how he was working wet into wet, the speed at which he was making his marks, which for him was a central part of the painting, then we could start to to restructure the whole image.
0: If we could return to the Monet for a moment, I'm so intrigued by this idea that you're working, okay, yes, you have um, the burnt painting but you have a, t- a small black and white photograph so I'm really intrigued as how you arrive at the colour Oh Well I
2: mean the, the colour is actually uh, very curious so once you have a physical object there are many ways that you can extract information about the colour. Uh, the smoke damage was pretty extreme and uh, the breakthrough happened because when I first looked at the painting I thought there probably wasn't very much we can do. The surface has got this sort of bobbly effect over the entire area, quite large areas of paint loss where it's raw canvas the stretcher bar coming very clearly through the surface the uh, hundreds of patches that have been put on to try and uh, keep the paint in place uh, presumably after the fire but maybe as as exercises in uh, New York University where they were using the, the painting as research for conservation. But when I went to the Tate to film and look at the painting in the Tate, or the Monets in the Tate, I realised that the surface there was basically the same surface that we had, this bobbly effect that comes from painting a painting over a long period of time, building up, working, so you, it sort of scumbles across the surface. And um, once we'd uh, been able to determine what was damage and what was intention. Uh, been able to find uh, uh, paintbrush marks that correlate to the black and white. Uh, We were then able to photograph using very high light levels and polarizing filters uh, the surface and extract an element of color. So we got the palette, we got the range, we got the type of colour, and then we were able to cross-relate that with a painting that's in the Met that has a very, very similar colour scheme. So we could build from the black and white, and actually black and white photos contain a lot of colour information, so you can't always identify all the colours, but there's normally a change of tone and you could normally find uh, the whole range of of colours that are used. So we were able to actually uh, reconstruct it in a breathtakingly convincing way. And and for me, the real excitement is there's a show of of, um, Monet's Nymphias uh, from the marmotel Monet collection in Paris, in Rome at the moment, and it contains both the surface of the painting... And the facsimile, the, and the performance. I mean, we like to think of what we did for The Lost Paintings as doing performances of paintings. So using the musical analogy, uh, if you did it, you would do your performance, which would differ from the one that Geordie and I did in... in. uh
0: So the original painting is a form of score, is what you're saying? That's right.
2: So in this case, the idea of the painting, or the evidence we have, so uh, in the case of the Churchill painting, so the Graham Sutherland painting of Churchill, uh, we had effectively the little... um, uh, image that most people know that painting from uh, that's very low resolution, that really doesn't tell you a, a great deal. It, it shows you what it looked like. It shows you a composition, but it doesn't really show you the brush marks. But in the the Churchill, um, uh, the research led us to uh, um, uh, a, a, a photojournalist called Larry Burroughs. Uh, Larry Burroughs was one of the great uh, uh, war photographers from he was very young in the Second World War and then uh, photographed a lot in in Vietnam and actually he was killed in in Laos uh, in when his helicopter the helicopter he was in was shot down but uh, Larry Burris is a great photographer and so I in a way the discovery of that program was finding Larry Burroughs' work. And I started looking, and we'd heard he'd taken the picture when it had gone to be shown in Parliament. Uh, so I found Larry Burroughs' son, Russell Burroughs, who lives in Boston. And after a lot of conversations, Russell found the ten-eight 8 um, photograph, uh, which we were then able to work with, but only as part of the process of making the facsimile. So, but once I'd got that data and got some decent data of the surface, we could cross refer that with the studies that are in the National uh, Portrait Gallery, uh, with the drawings that exist from. The various sittings, and we could really actually get back into that painting and For me, the breakthrough on the Sutherland was was following dialogues between Francis Bacon and Sutherland, the kind of slightly competitive relationship they had at that time, and actually realizing how important that Churchill painting was uh, for many of the the later uh, Bacon pictures so Bacon was critical that Sutherland's um, portraits were too illustrative um, but actually when you start getting into this um, the the final one probably is um, a little tight um, because I, I suspect it was very difficult to know how to deal with it and what to do but the studies are, are fantastic so the one in the National uh, Portrait Gallery is a beautiful painting Um, And the more we looked at it, the more we uh, thought about it, we were actually able to reconstruct. And, you know, I'm a painter, so for me, um, uh, knowing very well sort of Auerbach, Bomberg, uh, Sutherland, that English 1950s uh, sort of post-war weight and brownness, uh, it was really possible to get inside Sutherland's head. And I think the copy of the Churchill um, is really... Well, I'd love Sutherland to look at it.
0: (laughs) What a pity he can't. Um, I'm really intrigued by this balance between recreating a painting and recreating a historic object, because, for instance, in the copy of the Vermeer... You can see craquelure, you can see that this is a historic object. Tell me about the kind of decisions that you would have to make in that, because it's not straightforward. These don't look like like Vermeer's just painted them, do they?
2: No, no. What we're trying to do is to create the painting uh, as it was when it was last seen. So in each case, um, with the Monet... Uh, we were trying to create the money as it was in Moma the day before the fire. With the Vermeer, it's as it was uh, in Isabel Stewart Gardner uh, Museum before it was stolen. And the Vermeer is, is quite likely to reappear uh, one day because for sure a painting of that value uh, that was stolen in a major heist probably still exists and in a way the Vermeer programme becomes much more about the theft and about what's happened to the painting. Um, But with the Vermeer, we were um, really in quite a difficult position because the um, uh, only uh, colour reproduction we had shows a heavily restored painting. It's a very bad colour reproduction. Um, It shows the figure on the right-hand side of the singer wearing a a lapis uh, lazuli, uh, well, probably a lapis lazuli ash dress, but it's got the, the, the... lapis sickness so the pigment has gone grey and so there was a lot of dialogue that uh, in in the Vermeer about whether we should try to do a a reverse restoration and undo some of the things that appear to have changed the picture in negative ways so there's a lot of discussion about restoration there's a lot of discussion about why things look at look as they do and what had happened to that blue dress and with the the Vermeer we uh, went through a a complex process, so I actually got three different uh, members of Factum's team uh, to paint different versions. So uh, Alex's version went one way, Sylvia's version went another, Geordie's version went another. So we then ended up uh, doing high-resolution photographs of each of those and mapping those onto the um, uh, reproduction we had of the painting, and letting the painting come through, adjusting. So putting. Uh, many different hands onto one surface using digi- digital restoration techniques for us to actually analyze. But it still wasn't enough to make something convincing. So I uh, wrote to Desmond Shaw Taylor, who was then keeper of the Queen's picture, and they have a small Vermeer from a very similar time, very similar com- uh, com- uh, composition. Uh, flipped but it it has a lot of correlations with carpets in the foreground with singers with harpsichord and um Uh, very fortunately uh, Desmond arranged for Nicola Christie to let us in to uh, scan the painting. So we scanned the surface of the painting in the Queen's collection uh, which is very revealing because it shows the language of how Vermeer was working, the way the surface has aged, the relation between the paint and the canvas, how it's cracked. Of course the Queen's painting has also been restored at different times so there's a dialogue going on about whether the surface is right or wrong but we were able to map the surface of the Queen's picture onto the many levels of reconstruction that we'd done uh, in the workshop with the Vermeer. And for me it was was a magical moment because the minute the painting's got the right surface and thank goodness Vermeer has very limited brush marks, I mean, you believe it. And uh, when you see that frame, I mean, stretched, I mean, I'd love to put it into the frame in the Isabel Stewart Gardner. And I, I am sure there are quite Big differences between our Vermeer and Vermeer's Vermeer. Um, But I think Vermeer would enjoy and would have enjoyed watching this new approach to craftsmanship that uses technology to build an image which plays with photographic references, it plays with different representational languages, it's layered, it's complex, uh, and highly focused. And I think many of those qualities come through in the facsimile.
0: I have to ask, what will happen to these paintings now? You've recreated them. Do they go into the collection? Well, I mean, that's, were... <laughs> that's the
2: question I wanted you to ask me. So, um, you know, with the Klimt, which was painted for the ceiling, so it's the Allegory of Medicine, uh, and, and actually Geordie did an amazing job on reconstructing that, and I think everyone who sees the Klimt is bowled over by it. Again, there we only had a black and white. But I would love that to be put either temporally or permanently into the ceiling of the hall in the university in Vienna. But you have to remember, it was never there. So right. it was a painting that caused so much controversy. And uh, Joseph Kerner, who's in the television series, talks so beautifully about the rise of anti-Semitism in Vienna at that time. And that this painting, which was, is a really radical painting, uh, played a big part in that, because almost all the medical profession uh, were Jewish. And the painting was considered to be a challenge to taste on every level. Um, and, you know, it's about fr- uh, forensic analysis of causes of death, venereal disease, pregnancy, gynaecology. It's all of the subjects, and psychology, of course, that dominated life in Vienna um, at the very, very beginning of the 20th century. Um, Uh, The Churchill, I would love the Churchill painting to be shown in the National Gallery uh, alongside the study and then hung where it was intended in Parliament. So they're redoing the buildings in Parliament. At the end of it, they could put it back. And, of course, you can shunt things around a bit and make space. And for a politician that important, I would have thought there's an argument that you should make space. But there's also a controversy about uh, clearly... Um, uh, Churchill and uh, uh, Clemmy, his wife, were not happy with the painting. And there is a recording in the programme about the painting being destroyed, which is really quite shocking. Um, And actually hearing someone saying, oh, I took it out and put it on the bonfire in the morning, there was nothing left. I mean, it's, it's quite a cool, casual thing. So I'm sure there are many people who would feel it's not something that should be done but I think this kind of debate around art and around the importance of art not as a leisure activity but art as something fundamental in terms of communication and that's really uh, the motivation behind all the work in Factum's Foundation and a lot of the work in in Factum Arte.
0: Let's talk about the Factum Foundation then, because you've recreated heritage in various ways, haven't you? So tell me, tell me a bit about that. I mean, Tutankhamen's burial chamber is obviously the most famous example. Well,
2: Tutankhamun's burial chamber we worked on between 2009 and 2014, uh, going through uh, the turmoils in Egypt at that time, well, from 2011. It's now installed in a specially built museum space that's an annex to Carter's house at the entrance to the Valley of the Kings. Uh, it's a beautiful underground building building that was uh, built by the Egyptian architect Tadikwali, Wali, and the facsimile of the burial chamber, along with an exhibition about why the burial chamber looks like it does, uh, and a section on the difficulties of preserving the tombs in the Valley of the Kings. Those were all given to Egypt uh, and installed in 2014. And of course, there's a lot of press and a lot of media about Nick Reeves's potential discovery of a new Uh, doorway in the north wall uh, based on the information we recorded. I mean, so for me, uh, this is a clear evidence that um, just like in medical technologies now, uh, different imaging systems allow us to understand things in different ways and to see things previous generations couldn't. And obviously, on a personal level, I hope Nick Reeves is proved to be right. Um, But even uh, if not, there's still a real interest that he was able to observe things in this data um, uh, that no one had seen before, uh, and they're very clearly there. So if you can separate the colour from the relief. But probably the best example of what we've been doing in Egypt um, is the work uh, that's currently on display at the Antiquan Museum in, in Basel um, in an exhibition uh, on about the Tomb of Seti I, and that exhibition is really about uh, 200 years in the life of the tomb of Seti I. So Seti was, Seti's tomb was discovered, in theory, by uh, Belzoni, um, in uh, on the 16th and 17th of October in 1817. Um, by uh, 1821 the tomb was very significantly damaged because Belzoni had made casts using vegetable wax of the walls uh, um, and made uh, basically a facsimile. But as they pulled the the vegetable wax off the walls, it pulled the paint with it. So then many of the great Egyptologists like Champollion, uh, the Italians, uh, the Germans started cutting out sections of the tomb, because they could see the damage was so extreme. But fortunately, um, Belzoni and, and Riki made amazing watercolours of the tomb when it was first discovered. So we know in 1817, this tomb was in near perfect condition. So the Egyptian craftsmen were amazing. They would painted something that was intended to last for eternity, and it had done fantastically well for over, over 3,000 years. Uh, and then, in the name of preservation... So at that time, it was preservation was about bringing it to the great capitals who were building new museums in Europe. Um, but the tomb itself suffered. So the photographs taken by uh, Harry Burton in the 1920s reveal a very, very badly. They're black and white photos. Right. But amazing <laughs> photos. I think some of the best uh, archaeological photos ever done. Um, they reveal... Uh, this extraordinarily damaged surface, and the 3D scans and high-resolution colour recording we carried out with the team of Egyptians who've been trained in Luxor. So Aliya Ishmael leads the team who are working in the Valley of the Kings, uh, and we've now got three trained Egyptian operators because transferring skills to me is is critical. Um, and empowering local workforces is critical. So we've, we've done work in Dagestan, uh, we've done work in, in Egypt, we've done work in Chad and in Nigeria. We're training people in different parts of the world, and I think this is really how uh, the future of heritage preservation will happen.
0: Now, to change register completely... And lastly, let's talk about Marina Abramovic because Factum does a lot of work with contemporary artists and you are working with Marina Abramovic on a new project. Well, Factum
2: Arte um, works uh, with many artists from all over the world. Um, uh, one of the things that I'm really proud of is without any planning, without any uh, intentionality, we're now working with about equal numbers of men and women artists who are coming from all over the world. Well, when I was coming out of the Royal College in the 1980s, this was not the case. Um, Marina Abramovich is fascinating because in... in, um, And she's a, a wonderful person to work with. So for me uh, to have Marina with us in the studio to watch the way she animates the team, to watch the generosity with which she develops ideas and picks things up and goes deep. Uh, uh, She's exactly the kind of artist that that I love working with and I love helping and I love trying to watch Marina uh, as ideas take shape. And you know how an idea takes shape is a complex thing, and it can go in many different directions. So the idea is one part, but really the object is a far more complicated thing than the idea. Um, Marina is going to be the first woman artist ever to do a solo show in the main galleries at the Royal Academy which is celebrating its 250th anniversary. That's quite a statement. And I think, you know, Tim Marlowe bringing uh, Marina in and and giving her a show in in 2020 uh, is very brave. Um, I think it's a a wonderful chance. And I hope uh, we have time to really help Marina go into the next phase of her work, which can be both historical looking back, but also looking forward.
0: Can you tell us anything about the actual work you're making? No, I'd rather not. (laughs) I mean,
2: I think ideas are fragile things. And I think there are things that are being put together uh, and there are ways that ideas take shape. So uh, many of the things we're working on now probably won't end up in the show. And many other things that have not yet been conceived probably will.
0: Brilliant. Adam, thank you so much. Thank you. mystery of the lost paintings a seven part series begins on sky arts in the uk on the 2nd of may and it's shown in italy from the 19th of april and in germany from the 22nd of april scanning seti the regeneration of a pharaonic tomb is at the antiken museum in basel until the 6th of may Now, in 1982, Joseph Beuys created what became one of the last major works he made before his early death in 1986. Made for the Zeitgeist exhibition in Berlin, Stag Monuments was a complex, multifaceted environment in which a mound of clay was surrounded by symbolic objects from the artist's studio. Most of the elements of this work are gathered anew as the centrepiece of an exhibition at the Tadeus Ropak Gallery in London, curated by Norman Rosenthal. I went to the gallery to speak to Rosenthal and Ropak about the show and the enduring significance of this enigmatic artist. Norman, it would be great to begin by taking us back to 1982, to the Zeitgeist exhibition in Berlin, when you first worked with Boyce on this stag monument's work.
1: Well, Zeitgeist was... uh... An amazing exhibition, of course, um, and it wasn't a conceptual art exhibition or indeed even a, primarily a sculpture exhibition. It was an exhibition that, after a new spirit and painting at the Royal Academy, which was one year earlier, was celebrating the so-called new painting of the day, as I'm talking about artists like Julian Schnabel and George Baselitz and Anselm Kiefer and uh, Sigmar Polka and David Sally, uh Francesco Clemente. But in fact, I'd met Joseph Boyce much, much earlier in 1974 when I did a big show, well, probably his first major show in London in 1974 at the ICA called Art into Society, Society into Art, where he did this huge blackboard environment, which you can see now today in the National Gallery in Berlin. Boyce was a kind of artist who, he was a very instinctive person above all. And I remember, you know, when we asked him to participate Because with my friend Christos Joachimides, who was a great partner of mine, who recently died, alas, um, when I did this show with him, I did a new spirit in painting with him at the, uh, I did that with him at the Royal Academy in 1981, and when comes to 1982, we had access to this huge building in Berlin, the Martin Gropius Bau, you know, three times the size of the Royal Academy, with this vast atrium. Well, you can't put paintings in a vast atrium. I mean, around the sides of the of the atrium, we did manage to, in fact, we commissioned paintings and eight amazing artists at the time, but the center of the atrium had to be filled. And so what do we do? So we said, we'll go and see Joseph. And Joseph, we went to Dusseldorf, we went to Düsseldorf. We met with Josie. He said, no, I don't want to do this. It's not my scene. This is not my art. In the end, we came and persuaded him just to come to Berlin. And he came to Berlin. And I remember Boy standing very, for a very long time on the second floor up of this amazing balcony. And he looked over the wall uh, over the, into the atrium from the, from the, from, you know, from the balcony, the, f- the, the first floor balcony, not the ground floor balcony, but the second floor balcony of this amazing building. And then he said, yes, I'm going to, I will do this exhibition, but only if I'm allowed to bring the entire contents of my studio. And then, you know, obviously, gradually, the idea of the famous mountain came about. And, you know, he came with his tools, and he then wrapped all the tools with... then he wanted this clay mountain. He did this drawing, which if you look in the Zeitgeist catalog, you can see a drawing that he did of the environment. And he had this idea of... These mountains, you know, and I've talked a little bit about them in my catalogue essay about this mountain. And if you go to the, and at the end of the exhibition, he looked at this clay mountain, which was slightly faked, of course, it wasn't You know, it was a little structure underneath, but it looked like a clay mountain, a big clay, huge, you cannot begin to imagine how big the Martin Gropius bow is. So it was, I can't remember how many, pretty bad, you know, it must have been 24 feet high or something, 20, feet high. And uh, then he took his all his tools from his studio and he wrapped all the tools in the clay and he put them, he called them lemmings, he called the thing called stag, the thing was called stag monuments, and of course the stag is a very big thing in Boyce's iconography. And then he had these things which he called lemmings, but lemming, lem, lame, is, is a kind of pun. Joseph Boyce had a huge, He was very, he was a very funny person too, people think of him as being very serious. He wasn't just serious, he was also an incredibly, an amazing sense of humour, so... Lemming, which is like lemmings, you know, we all know what lemmings are in English, you know what I mean? But lemming, lem, lame, when they call them lemminger, lemming, lame is German for clay. So you have this kind of pun. So you have these lemmings, which are also clay things, and which he spread around with the contents of his studio the the mountain. And it made, I suppose, even today, you know... I think people would say, it's the most memorable occupation of this huge uh, atrium in Berlin that there's ever been. And if you go to Berlin, even in the cafeteria there, there's a large photograph of it. And it, you know, has a sort of... It made a mega impression, as well as all the paintings. And it was you know, an amazing privilege to be part of it. And of course, my dear friend, Tadeus, we have a very funny story to tell you about Tadeus because he was as involved with it in a strange way. As a very young man, as a young student, as an 18-year-old boy, he was very involved with it as well. And I think it's up to Tadeus Maybe
3: to tell that story, I think it'll amuse people.
0: Over to you, uh, Tadeus.
3: <laughs> well, for me, this was my kind of big entrance in the art world. I, I did a kind of internship there. So, I was hired to help um, to unpack and to move things around obviously I was slapping the beer actually, so I was not really involved in any of the content of that show It of course was far away from any of the creative process. but I could observe this from uh, from close actually because uh, uh, you know overhearing all this discussion boys had with his assistant about. Technical questions and artistic decisions, and he was a tea um, boy. He was Boyce's
1: tea boy, <laughs> almost, well, weren't
3: you? Well, yes. Well, I was. I, I, for me, it was fascinating because I was just really there, seeing how this exhibition was coming along and um, meeting many of the artists at this occasion. But basically, you know, being there in this incredible atrium, and and as Norman said, you know, he um, we were unpacking you know, all his tools, but more than tools, it was much more autobiographically. It was the iron board of his mother, which was part of, it became part of Stagg
0: Let's talk about, about the London Gallery and what it's permitting you to do, because this, this show that you're doing here is, is sort of museum scale, and you couldn't, In it's a partial reconstruction, but nonetheless it is, you are reintroducing this work into a sort of public domain. Of course you can't have the big mound of clay that you were talking about but tell me about what you are recreating in this space and you you do need a generous space in order to do that don't you
3: um well you know when i had decided to open a gallery in london you know my first dream exhibition was joseph of course and um knowing that we have the stark monuments in its original version all these original sculptures and to bringing this to London, which were never shown here, was exactly the project, you know, you just dream of, you know, the Tate Gallery has the bronze version, which is in the permanent collection. So you see, you know, this kind of lemmings in bronze, you see the Felix Potia in bronze, there you see the the stag itself, you know, with the ironing board of his mother.
0: That's right. That, that work is called The Lightning with a Stag and its Glare, and it's in that sort of great double-height gallery in Tate Modern, isn't it? Exactly,
3: yeah. Which
1: actually gives you the idea of the height of the piece. Right. And that was like a segment. You can't see, see what I It's basically a segment of the mountain that Boyce said, we must make a cast of this segment. And that was, you know, part of. And at the end of the exhibition, he somehow decided we should get on. He should get on with that. And then he died. you know, whilst that was being made. Actually, in the post, whilst he he died, whilst that was being made. You know, over the four years that that huge thing was actually the cast version, yeah. and the only original. The only one that with a patina that he approved of is the version which is current, which was bought by my dear friend Anne Danuncur, who was director of the Philadelphia Museum of Art until she died, unfortunately, and now because Philadelphia they don't have room to hang it, it now hangs in all places in North Adams, which is Massmoka, which is now called Massmoka which is the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art.
0: So what what are visitors to this gallery in London going to see today?
3: You know, the art world are people who are going to Tate Modern. They understand boys through this piece because it's permanently there. And to come here now and see the original version, the original elements of this piece is I think something really astonishing and and um you know the Tate modern collection has the table there's one table with two elements um as an original and the rest is bronze and here we have all the original thirty eight pieces and the table we show in bronze, so we just do the reverse so this was kind of homecoming to London this piece, which I was always dreaming to seeing here but um, and then having Norman Rosenthal on board in, on this project was crucial for for me because um, he was the curator originally invited Boyce to this co-curator. project co curator, but co-curator. invited him to create this incredible sculpture, which you know, besides London is in the collection of Philadelphia and in Frankfurt and showing in at Mass Mocha. So it became one of the most prominent sculptures, you know, defining Boyce. One of the interesting things about Boyce is.
0: On the one hand, he was aiming for a kind of universal language, a language in which he could draw in a very, very broad audience to his art. And yet, at the same time, his personal mythology is deeply complex and very personal in lots of ways. And also very German,
1: very romantic. Well, Very, very grounded in, at that time, seemed like, you you know, the famous line of Walter Benjamin, you know, we can't write poetry anymore and all that kind of thing. Um, grounded in German Romanticism, but need, but which needed to be given rebirth, re, you know, given a new kind of legitimacy, which he, along with other German people, uh, since the Second World War, uh, to a certain degree, and I would say that in the visual arts, he is maybe, you know, maybe the greatest figure of all in that department.
0: I'm intrigued by. Boyce's renouncing of objects to a degree. He said, you know, teaching was the most important part of what he did. The object was less important somehow. And yet he made very strikingly visual work. You know, when people see this show, they will, they will see a very, com- a, very, a very sophisticated visual language. Yeah, Tell me about that conflict yeah, in I his mean, work, if you like.
1: The famous line, you know, about the Berlin Wall is really ugly, it needs to be five centimetres higher or lower. Again, it was kind of wit, but he kind of meant it too. He had an incredible sense of, and a very original sense of form, and he allowed us to recognise more probably, even you when know, he does come from the era of Fluxus. he does come from the era of minimal art. So if you think in America of artists like Richard Serra or Carl Andre and, you know, or Robert Smithson and all those sorts of people that people know. And even in this country of people, you know, there are lots of artists in this country who were engaged with that when they were young, uh, a long time ago, and I could mention some of their names. Um, you know it was a university thing he is in some ways you know he came you know he is you know in the in the pre nineteen sixty eight era but also in the post nineteen sixty eight era he was uh, one of the great inventors who allowed us to recognize as we all do now the amazing beauty, even the pile of you know we see beauty everywhere you know I'm just happened to be finishing some work with Julian Schnabel at the moment, you know he says you know he's just a just a footprint on a pavement is as beautiful as the most beautiful rose. You know, it's a question of how you look at things. You know, he, he was part of that generation that really, but he was a leading member of that generation who taught us, you know, that uh, that everything is beautiful.
3: I really think that boys all but still believed in the object and believed in the idea of sculptures and the idea of drawing. So... I don't think that, you know, You know, he was one of the most radical thinkers in contemporary art. He was, you know, maybe with Marcel Duchamp, you know, those were the two um, artists of the 20th century who really changed thinking and creation to a new level. Um, and sometimes people, like your question indicated, thought that he didn't believe so much in the classical idea of the one object versus the other. But I think he did. The way he spoke and the little I knew him, the little he described the process, the process of making the art, he believed in the product at the end, in what comes out of it. So I think he also understood um, a weaker drawing versus a stronger one. So I think he would really see this difference. So I think it did not all merge into like one creative process. And so here I think he was really identifying you know more important pieces versus others. And he used also a lot the name uh, or the word sculpture. So when he was doing something, when he was creating, and I remember this so well, Felix Botia, you know, he turned a flower pot upside down and he said, let's make a sculpture out of this. So he took the form existing, and it's wonderful to see the sculpture in this room downstairs here. Um, he turned it around, and then there were many technical questions, you know, how glue can preserve this, but he turned it into a sculpture.
0: Now, you have a big announcement to make, which is that you will be representing the estate of Joseph Boys from this point on. Tell me about that process. Yes,
3: well, of course, we are very happy, and we feel very privileged to work so closely with the Boys family, with his widow, with his son and his daughter, Um, who live in Düsseldorf and uh, to represent the estate from now on. Um, We have worked together in the past, you know, they lent us some works for exhibitions and um, at the time when we showed the Stark Monument the first time in Paris... Uh, a couple of years ago uh, it was still alone back then in the, middle, in the meantime I was able to acquire it so um, um, it's the beginning of hopefully um, a very fruitful collaboration for the future and um, it was wonderful because when Norman for instance started to create the show and um, he would ask about his early sculptures from the late 40s you know I went to the estate and we discussed this this request, and um, I said that you know we would like to introduce this in a separate room, and that Roman's exhibition would like to start with this early idea of bronze, um, and then we were able to now um, get seven or eight early sculptures, which will be some of them shown the first time. Um, so I think it's the beginning of hopefully great ideas and great projects, and. Uh, um, you know, we, we, we will always need other lenders also. I don't think, you know, the entire shows can be um, done with the estate, but the estate has crucial pieces and definitely also um, the knowledge which comes in with the family who Eva Boyce was always there. She was really part of Beuys' life in the most creative periods and, and most intense periods. So I think, you know, she kind of carries on... Um, uh, all the kind of knowledge you need you know, to kind of define the work or kind of sometimes correct also uh, certain issues about Boyce. So um, we're very excited to kind of start this in a more intense way and have some great ideas for some uh, exhibitions to come. Is there
0: any difficulty in making the work of Boyce available on a market simply because he always spoke about the new concept of economics. He was there are the statements that that could be very strongly regarded as anti-capitalist so is it is it is it a sort of thorny issue to negotiate a market for an artist like boyce who was so committed to a kind of social principle
3: um no i don't think so because i think boyce himself um you know he would have also a very clear position towards the market already back then. I think he was never against the market. He criticized it, but he also said it's a fact and we cannot ignore facts. We just have to use the facts in our advantage and we have to change the facts. So he was he was never saying, you know, we have to stop it. He just always felt we have to change it. But he was very aware of the market and he used it also for his own career. So I think he was very aware of his prices and he felt, you know, sculptures and drawings should be sold for a certain value. I think um, he had a very clear position in this. So, And, you know, the art market, you know, has embraced um, boys early on. Um, we haven't seen very important works coming at auction so sometimes when people look into what is available at numbers then it's not so impressive and you think as it was the interest on the market has faded a bit but when you really know what happened behind the doors or the transactions of important pieces then uh, we know it is uh, you know some of the most important sculptures environments and you know important drawings have changed hands in the last few years the most prominent one was uh, the environment Das Kapital, which was like for many years in Switzerland and uh, is now in Berlin. It became part of the Marx collection and is on permanent view at the uh, National Gallery at the Hamburger Bahnhof. Um, So we have seen some important works change hands. Many of them went to institutions um, we have seen that museums in Europe, in the United States, um, and more and more also now in the Middle East and in China and in Southeast Asia, um, have started a very strong interest in boys. I think there's a new wave of it's interest, there's a new easy. generation of people now uh, turning to boys. And, and I mean, it's
1: always very easy for journalists and lots of people to criticize the market as a phenomenon in all spheres, not just the arts sphere. But in terms of art, there can be no doubt in my mind that for whatever negative things you can say, maybe legitimately about the art market and some of it's less pleasant, but it is an amazing mechanism of preservation, because value is a mechanism of preservation. And uh, people preserve things, people look after things, they look after basically what are, whether it's a Raphael painting or a Leonardo painting or a work of art by Joseph Boyce, it is ultimately just a souvenir, a remembrance of, you know, our civilization and our culture, our our, our 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 common culture, and that's what it is. And the market is very much part is a mechanism to keep it going.
0: And is it your hope that stag monuments might be snapped up by a museum in from this show?
3: Um, I don't know if it's. Uh, you know, we be decided during the show, but it definitely will end up in an institution. I think this is, um, you know, we had had a few offers from the private side. Um, it was shown recently in some museums in Germany and we had some requests from there. Um, but we, I'm absolutely convinced that it has to go to an institution and we will take our time and I'm sure we will succeed. Um, you know, because there are not so many important environments left on the market. There are not so many major sculptures which are still in private hands. Um, uh, I always say, you know, 25 years ago, the Guggenheim Museum in New York uh, wanted to acquire a major sculpture, and the then Director Thomas Krenz contacted me, and uh, we did a kind of trip through Germany and went to uh, maybe 20 private collectors who had important pieces and. Uh, Guggenheim found their amazing piece, which is in the collection. Um, And if I wanted to do the same trip, you know, when I got requested um, a couple of years ago now, you know, 20 years later, you know, most of these works, which were still available 20 years ago, have uh, been placed in the meantime, and most of them in institutions. So I think there's not much around, and I think. Um, the wave of new museums. You know, there was one museum in Shanghai which just opened a year ago, and it opened with the Joseph Boyce exhibition. We were all totally surprised, and you know, it was very unexpected that in China uh, somebody would start his museum with a Boyce show. And it was actually a modest show, it was basically showing multiples which they had acquired over a period of time. Um, but in a way, it had the essence of boys, and you know, boys believed into these two markets. Also, he always believed in this mu- multiplicity, thousands of them postcards because I mean, of he what? was forever signing postcards. I've you know, I got, I got
1: just a handful myself. I wish I had more, but you know, he was a great believer in disseminating his, you know, so uh, Just to get a postcard of his, his image of called Cosmo and Damien, which shows the twin towers. You know, long before 9-11. You know, these are, you can still find, even online, oh, yeah. amazing, quite cheap, souvenirs of his hand and of his touch and of his, dare I say it, his genius.
0: Norman, Tadeus, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. It was great fun to talk to you.
0: Joseph Boy's Utopia at the Stag Monuments is at Tadeus Ropak in London from 18th of April to 16th of June. And that's all for this podcast. You'll be able to read more about the mystery of lost paintings in our May issue which is out in a couple of weeks. If you don't already subscribe please do so wherever you get your podcasts and let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper. You can find us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening and see you next week.